Now then, I would like for us to look at our scripture lesson this morning. It's taken from the uh, Gospel according to Matthew, where we've been studying for several weeks, uh, actually since back before Christmas. We have seen Jesus as the one whom the Gentiles uh, came looking uh, for him who was born to be king of the Jews. And the Gospel according to Matthew portrays Jesus as king and this, uh, his kingdom. Uh, and uh, so we are looking at Jesus as king and king over his realm. And we will see that many of the stories that he tells, many of the parables have to do with the kingdom and the servants who are in that kingdom. Uh, last week we looked at the Mount of Transfiguration scene. I tried to call that sermon The Shining Barrier, having taken that title from a chapter in the book by Sheldon Van Auken, A Severe Mercy. You will remember that that uh, uh, brilliant book by Sheldon Van Auken is the story of the love affair that existed between he and his wife and of her tragic death at an early age and how his heart was broken. Both of them had been atheists. They had built a shining barrier about their marriage. They would not even have children because they did not want anything to interfere with their marriage. And believe me, children interfere. Uh, <laughs> uh, they, uh, this was a very wrong thing for them to have done. And uh, they didn't want to, uh, even to recognize the existence of God because they did not want to, uh, God to interfere either. They were both very literary people and had gone to Oxford where Sheldon Van Auken received a doctorate in literature. His wife was also a distinguished graduate student in literature. And while they were at Oxford, they met a circle of friends who were Orthodox uh, Christians who had been greatly influenced through C.S. Lewis. Uh, Sheldon Van Auken wrote a letter to C.S. Lewis saying that Christianity was too small how could it be that a little baby born in a stable in Bethlehem should be the king of the universe, God Almighty in human flesh, that it was just preposterous, it was too small? And to his astonishment, three days after he wrote the letter, he received a long letter from C.S. Lewis explaining that only God could pull this off and that Jesus was indeed who he claimed to be, the Son of God. Well, finally, Davy Van Auken becomes a believer. And uh, Sheldon Van Auken is almost jealous of God and has a grudge because his wife has become a believer in Christ. He doesn't say so at first, but then finally he too comes into faith. And their shining barrier is broken. Now, all of us create some sort of shining barrier around us. Every Sunday, I can hardly see because of the shining barrier. We think that the preacher is talking to everyone except ourselves, including the preacher. He doesn't think he's preaching to himself. But we need to get through this and realize that when God's Word speaks, God means for us to take seriously what he says, and that shining barrier is to be broken. Sheldon Van Auken had that barrier broken when C.S. Lewis wrote him a letter after the death of his wife, 
and in that letter told him that God had dealt him a severe mercy by taking his wife. Can you imagine writing that to a man in sorrow and saying God took your wife because of the shining barrier that you had built around your marriage? And Sheldon Van Auken said, I loved C.S. Lewis after that because I realized that what he was saying was true and that only in this way would I really surrender myself to God. Well, at the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, who is never at a loss for words, wanted to build a shrine to Jesus, a shrine to Moses, and a shrine to Elijah to enshrine this great moment that they had. Because if we can build a shrine about something, we can control it. Mark mercifully says that Peter suggested this because he didn't know what else to say. And, uh, of course, when they come down from the mountain, they are going to find a poor boy possessed of a demon who needs the merciful help of God in that demon being cast out, and they will be brought to the reality that their faith in God must be at work in the world in which we live. Now then, we come this week a step further toward the cross, and next week, by the way, Dr. Manfred Gutsky will be here. I'll be here too, and many of us who studied under Dr. Gutsky will be here because our college is having a day of prayer on Saturday, and Dr. Gutsky will be preaching to us on Sunday. But now then, today, we're going to look into a parable that Jesus told, and it's in Matthew chapter 20. Take your Bible, if you have it with you, and turn to the Gospel according to Matthew chapter 20. For the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius for the day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out at about the third hour, and he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to those he said, You too, go into the vineyard, and whatever is right, I will give you. And so they went. And again he went about the sixth hour and the ninth hour and did the same thing. And about the eleventh hour, now that's five o'clock in the afternoon, just an hour before quitting time. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, Why have you been standing here idle all day long? And they said to him, Because no one hired us. And he said to them, You too, go into the vineyard. And when evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last group to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each one received a denarius. Now that's a shock. Each one received a denarius, a full day's pay for only an hour's work. And when those hired first came, they thought that they would receive more, 
and they also received each one a denarius. And when they received it, they grumbled at the landowner. They said, these last men have worked only one hour and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day. But he answered and said to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. But I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I am generous? Thus the last shall be first and the first shall be last. May God grant us an understanding of this part of his word. O oh God, our Heavenly Father, we rejoice in all that thou hast given unto us. We've been so blessed, and we have so much more than we deserve. And yet we pray that you will make us to have such a sense of stewardship of what we possess in both time and talent and gifts, that we will use all that we have and are to the glory of our Savior. Help us to be willing to break the shining barrier and to allow your own searching word to penetrate our hearts so that we might see where merit and mercy work and so that we might yield ourselves completely to your lordship and obey you with our lives. Take these gifts and use them to your glory, we pray, and grant us guidance by your Holy Spirit in the study of your word. For Jesus' sake, amen which I read in your hearing just a moment ago was occasioned. Uh, by the way, the chapter headings are not inspired. In fact, they're very uninspired often. And they break into what uh, it was being taught just before. In the 19th chapter of the Gospel according to Matthew, we read the account of the rich young man, the man who had money, manners, and morals, who came running to Jesus and fell at his feet and asked him what he could do to inherit eternal life. Then when Jesus told him, he went away sadly because he had great possession. And all of us have possessions of some type or other which are apt to make us go away from Jesus. And anyway, this young man went away. And when he did go away, uh, Peter, uh, who is always the spokesman for the twelve, uh, speaks up. You see, all through the Old Testament, wealth is looked upon as a great blessing, and you get this from the book of Proverbs, and you get it from Deuteronomy and other places in Scripture. Well, when this young man had gone away from him, uh, Jesus turned to his disciples and said, Truly I tell you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God, uh, kingdom of heaven. And again I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Let me tell you uh, uh, something at this point. There is a form of exegesis that says that there was a little gate on the outskirts of on the, the city wall of Jerusalem called a postern gate, and that a camel got there, and you had to take the pack off the camel, and then you could snake him under the gate. Well, that's baloney as far as good exegesis is concerned. The preposterous illustration is that the biggest animal that they had, they didn't have elephants and they didn't have hippopotamus, but they did have camels. 
And the biggest thing they could think of, Jesus could think of, was a camel. A camel going through the eye of a needle, a big old humpy, hairy camel. And he said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Well, Peter began to think, well, look, the Old Testament tells us that being wealthy is a great blessing. And I'd kind of like to be blessed. And uh, uh, why is it that you're saying that to enter the kingdom of God is going to be impossible uh, like this? And Jesus knew what he was saying. When the disciples heard this, they were astonished. They were startled. And they said, who then can be saved? And uh, looking upon them, Jesus said, with men this is impossible. With men this is impossible. But with God all things are possible. And then Peter answered him. And he said to him, behold, we have left everything and followed you. We left our nets, we left our fishing boats, uh, we left our wives and children to go trooping after you. What then shall there be for us? And Jesus said, Truly I say to you who have followed me, in the generation when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you shall also sit upon twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And every one of you, who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake shall receive many times as much and shall inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Now that first, last, last, first is what occasions the parable that we read this morning. And when I was thinking about how best to get into this, I thought of a missionary correspondence department letter. Uh, some of you receive MCD letters. Those of you who have served on the mission field know what a chore it is to get them out. Uh, but they are necessary. We in our church pray for Sandy and Bert Gartrell and the Somervilles and the others, the Hoppers, the others that are listed there. Well, they write letters talking about their work. Well, an MCD letter from another denomination by a medical doctor, Dr. David Stewart, uh, who gives a certain amount of his time every year going to, the, to work in hard places in the earth, puts in perspective some of the true values and riches of life. In the summer of 1978, he took his wife and they made a trip around the world. And when they got to the city of Tehran, they went to visit the treasure of the late Shah of Iran. And I want you to listen to this missionary correspondence letter's description about the Shah's treasury. Quote, There is something very human in the desire to possess an object that is rare and beautiful. The gem will do a pearl or a diamond, perhaps an emerald. If we worked for it or if it helps to recall the transcendent moment, we could treasure it. We could glory in its reflection and refractions and in its uniqueness. We've just been to see the Shah's jewels or some of them. For a dollar and a half, you may go to the basement of his bank, and there you enter a vault the size of a tennis court. It's lined and littered by showcases, crowns and gowns, thrones and stones, a diamond as big as a paperweight, dozens more the size of pecans, hundreds like cherries, thousands like corn, row upon row upon row, too many to say. The crowns are gaudy and tasteless, heavy and dusty. The great gold globe studded with diamonds is as big as a beach ball. 
emeralds from the sea, rubies from the land, 18,000 carats. Still, there were quarts of gems that were unset, plus 66 tassels of 3,000 pearls each, and cases of watches, and elegant boxes, and golden boibles each beyond price. In a human sense, they had become meaningless, just pretty pebbles, treasure, but not treasured, lovely, but not loved, a sight to see, but we left without regret or envy after 20 minutes, and then we traveled on to India. It was just another corner of a street in Calcutta. It was narrow and there was a din of voices and a jam of people. There were rickshaws and carts and stagecoaches drawn by horses. Cows stood in the midst of the streets. Beggars tugged at our arms and chanted their miseries. Only the air, which was steamy and hot and stank, did not move. The building we sought was crowded right up to the sidewalk. A single floor, an open door, and a sign that said, Silence, my soul. We had come to Mother Teresa's house for the dying. It looked like a tableau from another century, like one of those old woodcuts of a plague house in the dark ages, except for the electric ceiling fan, which mercifully whirred. It was no more than a large room with dividers, and it was crowded with hundreds of stretchers. stretchers. On each rubber mat, there was someone ready to die. All were emaciated, some were swelling, some could sit, but eyes were sunken and vacant. Others were already unconscious. There was tuberculosis, there was cancer, there was malnutrition. It would be hard to imagine those better qualified for the words of Jesus, the least of these. There's a, they are the special concern of a Roman Catholic order that does nothing else. Two dozen young Indian men and women, novices in that order, moved among the patients directed by Indian nuns. Food was cooking in a big pot. The new arrival had just been hosed down, was getting his hair cut. The matted, tangled mass of hair came from his scalp all in one piece. One diminutive nun spoke English. Yes, they did take absolutely anyone. No, not all died. Yes, some did revive by food alone. Yes, they gave some simple treatment. Yes, there had been a doctor, but that was three months ago. Yes, they did hope to get another one. Most of them were not nuns, but nurses. The one working there was French. The founder, of course, was Mother Teresa of Albania and Yugoslavia. This was the first of such homes that had been established by her. And now there are many others in India, all supported by donations. Yes, they would be pleased to accept a donation in money from us, even now. And then she went back to her work, scarcely breaking a step. And we paused to read a direct and simple prayer on the wall, a prayer that she must have had to pray often. And so we left, thoughtful and fortunate and humble. And later, later, we thought about the Shaw's vault of riches. We thought about Mother Teresa's house of the dying. Actually, the rooms were about the same size. Both were filled with people who moved slowly and spoke softly. Each place had a sign on the wall. The jewels at the Shaw's were attended by muscular young men who scowled at us and made sure that the sign forbidding us to touch a showcase was observed. The dying were worthless in every sense but one. The tiny flicker of life, pointless now but still somehow sublime. 
We vote for people instead of jewels. Dirty, fragile, sinful, selfish, corrupt, dangerous, but redeemable. And just in case you'd like to read the sign on the wall of the house, that prayer said, Dear Lord, O Christ, great healer, I kneel before you and I pray, give me skill, give me clear vision in my mind, give me kindness and sympathy of heart, give me a singleness of purpose and strength to lift at least a part of the burden of the suffering of my fellow men. Give me a true realization of the privilege that's mine and take from my heart all that's deceitful and worldly, that with the simple faith of a child I may rely upon you. Now all of us may work in that vineyard. And Jesus said, for the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who went out early in the morning to hire laborers to work in his vineyard. He got there before daylight or right at daylight at six o'clock in the morning. And you notice that he agrees with the first. They make a sort of contract that they will work the 12 hours for one denarii. That was a common day's wage. And by the way, the New Testament documents seem to indicate that it was a time of great unemployment. How else could 5,000 men besides women and children be on a mountainside listening to Jesus preach? Uh, and so there was a lot of unemployment and people were looking for jobs. Some of us who can remember the Depression, I can still remember the Depression as a little boy in the town in Texas where I grew up. There was a place called the Market Square where farmers would bring their uh, uh, vegetables to sell and we would go to the Market Square and stand there where people would come in in flat-bedded trucks and they would call out whichever one they wished to hire for the day and you would be hired to go and to chop cotton or to pick cotton for a day in some farmer's field. And so this landowner who has a vineyard goes and hires certain people and agrees with them to give them uh, a denarii for a day's work and then he goes again at the third hour, that would be about nine o'clock in the morning, and he saw they're standing idle, that's a key word, idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I'll give you, and they went. And then he went again about the sixth hour, uh, uh, that would be three in the afternoon. He did the same thing about the eleventh hour, that would be five o'clock an hour before quitting time. And he found others, and he said to them, Why do you stand idle all day? And they said, Because no one has hired us. Now that's an important line. No one's hired us. And he said to them, You go into the vineyard. And then uh, when evening came at six o'clock, the end of the day's twelve hours of work, he paid them off. And you know the shock and the surprise, which is the key to the parable. The shock comes, when he tells his steward to pay off the ones that he hired last, the people who had worked only an hour, and he gave them a full denarii. And then the others in the line thought, boy, if these are just worked an hour and they get a denarii, what's he going to give us? He'll give us a lot more. But then Jesus compresses the parable and he begins to say that as the others come by, they get paid off, but each person gets a denarii. They get the same thing. And this, of course, would really bring down the wrath of the labor unions on your head today.
uh, even the IRS. Uh, you, you could get in all kind of trouble. Uh, but uh, they grumble. And uh, then Jesus is going to speak to the people who are grumbling. And I love the way he speaks to them here because he calls them friends. And he puts the words in their mouth. He's telling the story. And uh, these laborers who have come, they say, uh, we have borne the scorching heat of the day. Now, Jesus is telling the story, and so he is sympathetic with them. He knows they've been out there working all day, and he's sympathetic with them. And so he, 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 he wants them to know that he's sympathetic. But he also wants them to know that he is Lord. That he is Lord. And the teaching of this parable, the surprise is that he is sovereign and he will do what he will. That's why I had us sing Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. A libertine with dozens of illegitimate children from his days as a slaver by the name of John Newton could write a hymn, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. A thief who is dying, nailed on a cross, who cannot go anywhere and do anything with his hands for Jesus, who cannot run any errands for Jesus. And yet he says to him, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. This last is going to be the first in heaven. When Jesus goes in the gates of heaven, he doesn't take the moderator of the church of Jerusalem. He doesn't take the pope. He goes taking a man that's been nailed there on the cross beside him, who was a thief and a scoundrel. Some woman has said, what good did that thief do the kingdom of God? All he did was smoke out his life like a cigarette and blow the smoke in God's face, and he got saved. Let me tell you, that thief has probably put more hope in people's hearts than all the grudging, crabby saints like that because it shows that it's never, never, never too late, that God can save you and that he wants to save you and this is his amazing grace and how he does want to deal with you. And so that's the surprise element that Jesus seeks to toss out here for his disciples to understand in this moment. Uh, what did these men get who went all day long? I want to get to that very quickly. You know what they got? They got what, what I wanted Henry Shewitt, and I want to thank him for his kindness in singing that song a while ago. It, he was brave to sing his second solo. I heard an old minister sing that song who was 70 years old. And his voice cracked when he sang it, and he said, Since I started for the kingdom, since my life he controlled, since I gave my heart to Jesus, the longer I serve him, the sweeter he grows. The longer I serve him, the sweeter he grows. The more that I love him, the more love he bestows. Each day is like heaven. My heart overflows. The longer I serve him, the sweeter he grows. Those who had been working all day long had the joy of that song. 
They had the joy and the dignity of work all day long. They weren't standing idle in the marketplace. And they got to be with the owner of the vineyard, who is God. They got to be with Jesus. And that's something you want to remember and keep in your mind and in your heart there. And then they got something else. They got the joy of seeing other people brought into the kingdom too. They got the joy of seeing other people brought into the kingdom too. And isn't that a great joy to see? Uh, I had a, a uh, well, I was at that uh, Lausanne Congress on Evangelism, one of the greatest experiences of my life. And uh, 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 Oswald Guinness, Ozzy Guinness, uh, was there. Uh, he is a distinguished Oxford scholar and, a, and an apologist, a defender of the Christian faith, the one who gives an answer for the faith, and a very brilliant and able man. And Oz Guinness was asked to give his testimony at another meeting where a friend of mine was present. And he said that when he got up to give his testimony, that he said there, that he came from Northern Ireland. And he said, I came from a section of Ireland where there are three Guinnesses. The Guinnesses that make beer, and they are rich. And the Guinnesses who are in the banking industry, and they are rich. And the Guinnesses who are Plymouth Brethren. Christians, and we're all poor Christians. And he said, that's the Guinnesses that I come from. And he said, I don't remember a time in my life when I did not believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. I don't remember a time in my life when I did not want to love and to serve him. I just grew up wanting to serve him. My grandmother had been a missionary. Uh, my people had been servants of Christ. And so I came. So you see, he had that blessing of the longer he served him, the sweeter he grows. And that's what he wants to get across to us. I wish I had time to tell you the rest of the things I wrote down. I worked all day on this yesterday. Uh, uh, the, the parable has a lot of interesting things to it. There are people who get saved at 9 o'clock. I wonder who the 9 o'clock workers are. I think they're college students. They're noon workers in the middle age of life who are getting to be the, uh, getting enough money that they don't want the kids to get it all and take it away from them or somebody else to take away tenure from them. Uh, they get three o'clock in the afternoon uh, workers. Uh, then you get that 11th hour worker, the one just an hour before time to go. And the interesting thing is that that worker there gets the same uh, pay. But the others got a different sort of pay. They got a job, they got to be with their master, and they got the joy of seeing others come in. If you did not get to go and see the film Chariots of Fire last week, I hope you'll go this week and see it. And see Eric Little. I can still remember going into D.P. Thompson's home in Creef in Scotland. And that film, by the way, was a Cinderella story. It cost five and a half million dollars to make it, and it's already netted 15 million. <laughs> uh, and it's grossed 30 million. And it's still going. Uh, th that film is incredible. Uh, because of the spiritual and Christian testimony that it gets across in it, and I remember old D.P. Thompson Creep wrote a biography of Eric Little. He couldn't get anyone to publish it, and he had to pay for publishing it himself. And I talked to him 
personally about Eric Little in his home the last time I ever saw D.P. alive. And D.P. Thompson uh, told me of this one who had served Jesus from the time he was a young man until he died in a Japanese internment camp out in uh, China during World War II, still serving Christ, uh, Eric Little, the great Olympic runner. And do you know what he said about Eric Little? He said, I went to him and talked him into going into church halls and speaking because people would come and listen to him when they didn't want to listen to a parson. And he said, Eric went, and he said we would sleep on the floor in a straw mattress in the back of a church. And he said that went on all summer long and up into the fall. And he said, do you know that I never heard Eric Little say one word that I think Jesus would have disapproved of? And he said, I never saw him do one thing that I think Jesus would have disapproved of. And James Stewart, the greatest preacher on the face of the earth, James Stewart it used to tell us about him in class in Edinburgh at New College, and his face would glow when he spoke of it. And he told how that they had gone down to Waverly Station, the big railroad station in Edinburgh, where there must be 20 railroad tracks and the steam and the clanging of the trains all trying to pull out of the station. And he said when Eric Little left that train station, to go to London to take the uh, Trans-Siberian Railway and the Orient Express to go out to China to serve as a missionary. The students from Edinburgh University went down to the station to see him off on the train. And he said they sang, All hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth a royal diadem and crown him, the Lord Jesus, Lord of all. And he said they sang it so loud it drowned out the sound of all the locomotives that were in that station and the praise of Jesus. Go see that film this week and get a little touch of the flavor of that man. These are workers in the vineyard. Are you working for Jesus Christ? Has he spoken to you at any hour in your life? And are you willing to serve him at whatever task he calls you, and all thou spendest, Jesus will repay, is one of the great lines in our hymn. And when I think of heaven and the joys that shall be ours there, just one glimpse of him in glory will the toils of life repay. Let us bow in prayer. O oh God, our Father, we thank you for this story which our Lord Jesus told. We thank you for the love which he shows that shines through this story, the tough love that won't let the all-day workers bully him, and then the good and the kind and the generous love that surprises even the eleventh-hour workers, people who feel like their lives have all been messed up and are a lost cause. We thank you that Jesus Christ shows us he's able to hire us at the last minute. Lord, I don't know where people are here today, even in this sanctuary. But I have a feeling that right here today there may be some who thought about the different times of day and stages in their life. Maybe some mother, father, young person, or grandfather, grandmother. But maybe they've seen a glimpse of the king. 
and of the people that need to be helped and served, who invites them to come and work. And if any person here has never asked for his love, and if you can move that person now, Lord, and we pray that you will, help them to give their lives over unto you. And Father, help people not to be turned off by grouchy saints. And help us, Lord, those of us who long ago signed up to work for Jesus, not to think for a moment about any disappointment with wages, just the joy to be with him, just the privilege of seeing others come to a knowledge of him, just the privilege of serving him. Help us praise you for that. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the communion and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, our keeper and guide, be and abide with us all, now and forevermore.